And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. Welcome. Glad you're here, of course, as we continue to grind through this kind of holiday shortened week. Um, again, markets just uh, kind of hanging in here right now. Economic news is going to become a little bit uh, less exciting this week. But next week, uh, we have the inflation report and then, of course, the Fed meeting coming up. That's going to be kind of all, all eyes focused on that. But employment is one of the interesting kind of things that's going on right now because, again, we continue to have these fairly strong job reports. And, uh, but doing a little bit of analysis and kind of looking at the job situation may not be as robust as, you know, well, maybe headlines make it out to be, right? Everybody's been very excited about the jobs reports. Again, we're you know, producing new jobs. That's great, right? We're doing that. Um, but also remember that there's two factors about creating jobs that's very important um, in the economy. So first of all, we have population growth. So we, we grow the population every month, right? We have new entrants into the population, either through immigration or natural birth. Um, and then, of course, that population grows over time. So you have more as, you know, people start to enter the workforce every month, we have new people entering that workforce. So we need to create jobs to absorb those new entrants into the workforce. So every month we need to have a set of jobs open available for people entering the workforce. So that's one part of that. The second part, of course, is, is keeping everybody else employed that was employed. So, you know, we have a lot of kind of misnomers in the media right now talking about, well, uh, we've created 189,000 new jobs this month or whatever, right? So did we really create 189,000 new jobs or are we still replacing jobs that we terminated back during the pandemic? So if we look at job growth pre-pandemic, right, there's a, a trend of growth over time, right? So we again, we need to create new jobs to absorb new labor entrants into the markets because of population growth. So there's a consistently rising trend of jobs needed, right? So we're still below that previous trend. In other words, we're still trying to play catch up to what we lost during the pandemic plus the job growth. So yes, we are creating jobs. Jobs are growing, absolutely. But we're still below where we should be in terms of where we were in growth of jobs pre-pandemic. So that's one side of this. The other side of this is also very, very interesting. Once you start kind of digging down into the numbers, we start finding out that each job report this year, the previous jobs report was revised down. And so, of course, now we revise jobs just like the economy, right? So when we have GDP reports, right, we have the initial GDP report, then we revise it two more times uh, to get the final GDP you know, number, right? So at the end of each quarter. We do the same thing for jobs. There's three estimates for the, for, the, for the jobs report. So every time we report jobs, then we look back and we revise the other jobs. We do that three times. The difference right now between the third estimate and the first estimate of the jobs is the most negative that we've had really since the financial crisis. In other words, the previous downward revisions of jobs. Now, we don't pay attention to those revisions, right? 
Um, when we get the jobs report, we all go, hey, we created 180,000 new jobs, but we don't really pay attention to the fact that we revised down all those previous jobs since the beginning of the year. So we haven't created nearly as many jobs as it looks like. But importantly, we have now the biggest spread, negative spread, between the first estimate and the third estimate that we've had since the financial crisis. In fact, that spread is a very recessionary indicator. It's an early warning sign. And in fact, every time you have this kind of negative spread in the between the first and the third reports on these estimates, it is typically preceded the onset of a recession. Now, I'm not, I'm not making a recession call here, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, is this is just one, another one of those mini indicators, right? You know, so if we take a look at the mainstream media right now, they're all like, hey, absolutely no chance of recession. Goldman Sachs just revised down their chance of recession from 20% to 15%. So they're saying no chance of recession. But yet we continue to have more and more of these kind of data points that suggest the economy is still heading towards a recession. So again, we've talked about before is that, look, the, the, pot, we, the monetary conditions are very tight and that's going to weigh on economic growth and earnings. And so there's a, there's a, a dichotomy right now between what's happening in the financial markets versus what's happening in the economy. And more importantly, what most likely will happen as we get into later next year. So again, you know, when you just take a kind of a sum of all of the data out there, the risk of recession certainly has not been put away. And I, I think we have to maintain a view that the risk of a recession sometime next year is certainly possible at this point, unless there's some type of massive monetary infusion from the government. Again, the student loan payment set to start on October the 1st is going to be about a $150 billion drag on the economy. So again, it's not small. Not small at all. So just kind of keep this in mind that we're looking at. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, markets are doing okay, right? Yesterday, markets were down a little bit. Interest rates were up a bit because of oil prices. Not surprising. But again, markets just really kind of doing well, what they do. And, you know, we continue to kind of be in this correctional period here, August, September. Uh, markets are, are, are responding very normally to all that. One of the things, though, that is kind of interesting is looking at the volatility index, which is very, very suppressed right now. Volatility, not, not surprisingly, has picked up over the last couple of days because of the choppiness in the market. But again, volatility as a whole is very suppressed relative to where we've been historically. And, you know, Im importantly here, as we take a look at volatility, yes, there's certainly some impact from these zero day to expiration options that there's been a large chunk or change in the options market to where people are day trading these options that have less than one day to maturity. In fact, they make up more than half of all the option trading every day. So there's certainly an impact about that. And, and there's the kind of some theories that this is really kind of suppressing the overall, overall volatility index. And that may very well be the case. You know, I don't have any anecdotal, uh, you know, evidence of that just yet. But what I do suggest here is, is that, you know, this volatility is very, very suppressed here. And, and basically going back to this, you know, investors have really no fear of a correction or something in the market. And that, that really is the case. If you talk to most investors, they're like, yeah, market's great. It's doing fine. It's only going to go up from here. We're good. You know, um, you know, markets are back. No, no, no worry about a potential recession or anything else that might occur uh, that would impact stock prices. 
um, the volatility index is kind of confirming exactly that sentiment. Now here's the interesting thing about this. So when we start talking about volatility at these very low levels, volatility over the past you know, decade has had periods of these very low readings before and they all do eventually end and they eventually end with a bigger market correction at some point. What triggers that, I have, I have no idea. But right now, if you take a look at where we are in terms of the yields on markets, right? So the stock, so the dividend yield across the entire index is at a very low level relative to where it should be in this type of a market. And with volatility at these levels, it suggests that yields are going to be higher in the future. And this particularly dovetails with the fact you have very low volatility, very high valuations, very low yields. You start putting all those together. What that suggests is, is that yields are going to rise on stocks at some point over the next year. And that's historically the way that this has worked out. So how does that happen? Well, in order to correct valuations and get yields up, stock prices have to go down. So the question is, is when does that happen? What causes that to occur? I have no idea, but volatility continues to be one of those measures we want to watch because that's kind of an early warning signal. If volatility starts to rise, that is going to give us good signal of potentially the risk coming in the markets. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we'll pick up with Danny Ratliff, seven investments that maybe you want to avoid. We'll talk about that with Danny Ratliff right here on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me uh, this morning. Drug himself out of bed early. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. Brent, coming in hot this morning. He overslept. <laughs> so, See, that's not real common. That's not real common, but it's been twice lately. Which, what, what's going on with your alarm clock at home? <laughs> maybe time to get another one. <laughs> I, I don't know. The, I don't. It's hot. Yeah. I did a lot of work outside yesterday. Yeah. Went to bed exhausted. I'll do it. I called Brent last week and said, hey, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I'm on my way. <laughs> Got here in time. So yeah, uh, I know how it goes. Feel so the pain. Every morning, Brent leaves me these little uh, tidbits on my computer I tell you about from time to time. And he left me this one this morning. So if someone from, and let me just tell you the, 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 uh, why this made me chuckle. Because my wife has an ongoing battle with anything with a Ziploc on it. <laughs> She cannot, for her life, operate a Ziploc. And I don't know why this is, but I will tell you how I know that that she's been into something that has a Ziploc, you know, like cheese, yeah. has a Ziploc top. I, I will know that my wife has been into the cheese because she will have cut the top off the bag <laughs> entirely because she can't open the Ziploc and she can't get it to shut. And that, I don't know if this is like a mental hangover from something that happened to her as a child. I don't know what, but there's this ongoing battle between her and Ziplocs. But so this made me chuckle this morning because the, the Brent put on here says, if someone from Ziploc could contact literally anyone in the cereal business, that would be great. And this is a true fact because, you know, when you have kids growing up and I, I don't know if, if Danny's are old enough yet, but 
once that they're getting their own breakfast and everything every morning, you will find cereal bags open and everything stale. <laughs> so, you know, it's completely away. There's nothing worse than stale Cheerios. Yeah. Well, I'm convinced they do it intentionally, though, because then it makes it difficult to actually get a proper pour, like when you're pouring them out of the bag. So, like, stuff just goes everywhere. It comes out, right. and you're like, oh, well, you got to buy more. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the case. <laughs> yeah, that's funny that we actually had a conversation with our middle one. He's been giving us grief on food lately. Doesn't matter. You could cook his favorite meal, and he's like, "Nah, this is terrible." And my wife is drives her bonkers. Right. Right. Which me too. I get it. And uh, he just he's being a stinker for whatever reason. And so uh, I said, "You know what? I'm gonna." They had a blowout yesterday, so I said, "I've got a little bit of time. I'll make some phone calls and, and sit in line to go pick him up." And man, he got in the car and. Uh, said, hey, bud, we need to have a talk. And he said, yep. He said, looks like I'm going to start making my own breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I said, amen. Yes, you are. So he's about as stubborn as she is. So I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see who's going to win this one. Well, you know, my wife's always threatening to come back after she passes away. She's like, she's always threatening to come back and haunt me. I just figured out I'm going to bury her in a Ziploc bag. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> She'll never get She'll out. She'll never get out. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, man. Anyway, she's probably going to come back to haunt me after the show this morning. Uh, (laughs) Nice earn, Mr. Roberts. (laughs) Yes, it ziplocked. So seven things or seven investments that, well, before we get into that, um, just a couple of other quick tidbits, and we'll get into this. I'm going to give this segment some time because there's a lot to kind of dig into. So, you know, you know, one of the things that, you know, we were talking about earlier in, in respect to the markets is, again, there's this kind of this overall writing sentiment that, you know, everything's fine, right? Um, I, I did, I was on Charles Payne yesterday on Fox Business, and, you know, he led off with the, the question, right? He's like, you know, there, there's, everybody's convinced there's no recession coming, right? And, and this has really kind of become the base case is that we're going to avoid recession. And, everything's going to be fine and markets going to go higher from here. And again, this is why the VIX is very suppressed right now, because there is no fear in the overall market. And as we talked about before, you know, this is the, the interesting dichotomy of things, because last year everybody was expecting a recession and markets were declining because everybody was expecting a recession. It didn't happen. And so now everybody just assumes that the recession isn't going to occur. But yet the numerous, it's not just one indicator here or maybe one random kind of indicator over there. There's just more and more indicators that are now piling up that suggest the recession risk is is fairly elevated. And I was just talking about the spread between uh, employment revisions. We've had negative revisions on employment every single month this year. We don't pay attention to those revisions but what it tells you is that the job market's a lot weaker than it actually looks like, which also explains a lot of other things. They um, revised it down by like what, 111,000 jobs? Yeah, and 350 since uh, last year. Wow. So, but uh, uh, but again, the the spread in revisions between the one month and the three month is the most negative since the financial crisis, and that negative spread only occurs pre-recession. So. You have that. You have the NFIB surveys, which are very in you know recessionary territory. You have, you know, um, the the leading economic indicators and in recessionary indicators, the yield curve in recessionary territory. I mean, just you know, there's just so many numerous indicators, and many of these indicators have virtually perfect track records for, for predicting recession. 
Could this be time, this time be different? Absolutely. Not saying that it can't be different this time. Could we avoid a recession? Absolutely. It just seems to, to be, though, that people have become uber complacent in this idea that you're not going to have a recession, which actually now provides the basis to actually have a recession from a contrarian basis, right? Just as Bob Farrell once said, when everybody expects something to happen, something else tends to occur. Right now, everybody expects there to be no recession. So just something to kind of think about. Well, and Goldman as well comes out yesterday and says, yeah. hey, what they reduced their uh, recession Risk. indicator or, or expectation to 15%. Right, from 20. And again, but they're, and they're well below the consensus estimate as well. Yeah. So there's there's you know and, and even the the kind of but even the the kind of Bloomberg consensus estimate is still fairly low, it's like thirty percent. So that, and that's you know down from nearly a hundred percent last year. So, you know it, it's just you know the the point here is is that I I think that you just can't take your eye off the ball right now from the standpoint there's there's just you know there is risk and I'm not saying that that means go sell everything and go you know hide out in the bunker somewhere, but. I just think you have to pay attention that there is some risk as we head into next year. And, and particularly as these student loan repayments start uh, in, in October, that's going to be a hit to the market. So every, every month we come out and we have all these people talk about, well, there's all this excess savings, which is declining, right? These excess savings that we have, I don't know how they actually calculate that because the people with money, the top 10%, they have a lot of savings. You know, we can go look at the bottom 80%, they have nothing. They're living paycheck to paycheck. There's a big dichotomy between the top 10% and the bottom 80% of the, of, of the economy in terms of finances. So, But even with that, though, if you just assume this bottom 80% is already struggling, what's going to happen to spending when they have to start making these payments, right? That's, And I, I just think that's one of the risks I think that a lot of people are just really kind of grossly overlooking. Yeah, and I think it's easy to do. I mean, when you you think about the environment that we've been in, you're coming out of the pandemic, people say, hey, we're, we're going to spend. And, you know, it has changed from a normal type of recession to what we would historically see because we've never had this uh, amount of stimulus. It's, it's just unheard of. So I think it is different in many ways. Right. Well, I think it's going to be interesting, too, because, you know, as we come out of this, and, we're, you know, we're going to learn a lot of lessons from this. And... You know, going into this, and, and we were writing articles about modern monetary theory and the, and the fallacy of modern monetary theory, you know, going into the financial uh, or, or into the pandemic uh, situation. And, you know, everybody was like, oh, no, MMT is great. And, 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 of course, now we find out that well, it doesn't really work as planned <laughs> because it creates inflation. And, you know, as always is the case, we go back and we look at John Maynard Keynes, and he said, look, d during a economic recession, the government should step in and start spending money, right? Deficit spending during a recession by the government. All people heard, or all, all politicians heard is, oh, spend more money. That's, that's all they heard. They didn't hear the part from Keynes that said, after the recession is over, you go back to a surplus and prepare for the next downturn, right? Never heard that. We just once once they latched onto this idea of spending money to avoid deficits or to avoid recessions, then deficits just became a thing, and we were okay with that. And modern monetary theory says the same thing: is like, hey, send checks to much, send checks to households. That's fine, but as soon as you have inflation, raise taxes. We didn't raise taxes. Well, not yet, not yet. But again, nobody wants to raise taxes either. You don't get elected raising taxes. Yeah. So what about now with the Treasury having to issue so many, so much more in debt with bonds? 
at some point we're going to have more demand than supply and rates are going to increase? No. No? Because it's it's always a place where you store capital. Yeah. At the end of the day. So, you know, and this and this is always a function, and this is always kind of the misnomer of, the, of, of you know, a lot of the, you know, the markets. Inflation is a function of economic growth. Interest rates are the calculation against economic growth and inflation. So interest rates can't go up if inflation and economic growth are going down. Yeah. Because it's all about what you're going to lend money at. And I lend money based on what my expectations for economic growth and inflation are. So, it, it, see, and, and this is the – people think that there's this, you know, there's – kind of this idea of these bond vigilantes and they're just going to show up and nobody's going to buy bonds. Well, A, you've got to store capital somewhere and it's not going to be in the stock market when the stock market's going down, so money's got to go to somewhere. But the second thing is, is that the theory of bond vigilantes is fine until you have government intervention. And so as soon as you start having a problem, who's going to show up and start buying bonds? Uncle Sam. Yeah, the Federal Reserve or every other central bank on the planet. Yeah. So... It's, so you don't have a free market. You don't, and you know this is funny because everybody says, "Well, we don't have a free, we don't have a free market economy anymore, right?" Because the government is so involved in everything, right? We don't have a free stock market because we have, you know, all this government intervention. But somehow they think that there's a free market in bonds. Come back after the break. Pick up with seven types of investments you should avoid. But Danny Ratliff, don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so uh seven types of investments clients should avoid and and you know this is always kind of an interesting topic and because there's so many people that have different opinions about these things. And this is kind of, so I just want to clarify that this is in general, these are seven types of investments that you want to avoid. And the reason is, is that for most people doing it, it really comes down to the analysis and the experience of these investments. And, and we'll, we'll get it. We'll kind of nail them down one by one here, but Danny, just kind of your thoughts. Well, I think it also comes down to kind of your emotional fortitude as far as what you can handle and then also understanding that, okay, maybe I can use this type of investment, but you're not going to throw everything you have at it, right? It's mm -hmm. maybe in bits and pieces and understand exactly where that fits within your portfolio, your goals, objectives. And so it's very subjective, like you mentioned. Right. But um, came across this article and I thought, you know, this is really interesting because there's some that I really agree with. Right. And there's a couple I'm like, eh. That doesn't make as much sense. Right. Right. So very subjective. But number one, speculative assets. I think that, you know, we get in environments, especially when everybody feels like maybe at the moment where people feel like, yeah, you know what? There's going to be 
uh, the market can do no wrong. Or, you know, we talked about this the other day that there's that insurance policy with the Fed that's just waiting or fiscal and monetary policy mm. to come bail everybody out here at some point. And so I think a speculative asset, number one, you need to understand and determine what is truly speculative, right? I mean, markets in general are speculative. Right. But like you mentioned, doing analysis, understanding exactly what the drivers behind it are, um, you know, exactly what these guys have maybe in their pipeline, what their business looks like, understanding fundamentals, four letter word here lately. Um, at some point, that'll that'll come back. Well, and again, when you're talking about, I guess, you know, you have to kind of define what you mean by speculative investment. But correct. You know, but if you're thinking about taking a flyer on some new up and coming company, right? It's like uh, there's a, a company. It's a you know, and again, we see this a lot with penny stocks. Um, yeah. There's a lot of pump and dump schemes for penny stocks, and they tell you, oh, this company is going to have the the next big invention uh, that for healthcare, and as soon as you get FDA approval, uh, this stock's going to go taking off to the moon, and so people will pile into this and not really understanding that a vast majority of of drugs and things getting applied to the FDA ultimately get rejected. So these companies will go from boom to bust very, very quickly. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with speculating in the markets as long as it's done with the appropriate risk management. The problem is, is that most people don't understand, you know, they're, they're going off a news headline, but they don't understand all the underlying risk that's involved with that. And potentially that that's going to mean that you could lose some, most or all of your money. And then when that happens, then they're shocked that that happened. No, what happened? I mean, we had so many good things behind it. This guy said it was going to do so well, right. or my neighbor. I mean, you know, there's so many different you know things that you hear about this. And so with any type of speculative investment, you need to be cautious. You know, I, I use this, this analogy quite a bit. Do you remember back in the day, Iraqi dinars? Mm -hmm. And so I was getting calls. This was like right after, this is mid-2000s. And I get calls from people. They say, hey, Danny, I'm, I'm about to come into a lot of money. Um, great. Where, what happened? Where did it come from? You know, is it a settlement? Is uh did you win the lottery? Um, oh, I can't tell you about it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no. it, was a, it was a huge scam. We were on the radio show talking about that ad nauseum because people were calling up going, you know, I've got all these Iraqi, uh, Iraqi dinars. And as soon as they, you know, issue the new, as soon as they convert, you know, back to this, this these are going to be worth, you know, millions of dollars. And, I'm, and I was telling everybody back then, it's like, look, when a country goes through what Iraq went through, if they did install a new government, the first thing they're going to do is wipe out the old currency and issue new currency. So, I mean, well, it was already it was already wiped out. They devalued it. And yeah. so essentially what they but, were going to do is they were going to come back and revalue the Iraqi dinar. That, there was, that's, there was that's information the everywhere, right? right? Right. That's the whole thing, though. But they were never going to do that. Yeah. And I mean, the whole premise never made sense, but it was a huge scam. I don't want to get off on this because we're going to get off on a, on a whole total different tangent. But, but what I want to get to is with that is that a lot of times. So, so my question to them, once you find out what it really was, is like you find out that people put up, they took home equity out. They took the retirement and absolutely. cashed it out and bought all these. I said, well, OK, well, when is this going? Well, Danny, you don't understand. These guys are so smart. You wouldn't understand. Well, then how come you understand? This is what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, you know, hang on. <laughs> so what is it that I don't understand? So, so finally, I said, well, listen, all right, this is going to be revalued this next week. Will they sell you more? Well, yeah. Okay. Well, if it's, it's going to revalue, it's going to be worth all this. Why would they sell you more? Well, because they're good people. Yes. Well, then why don't they give it to you? Because <laughs> they already have so much money. And, and so I, I know this is probably a really touchy point with somebody out there. And I'm sorry, because I know this is terrible. Um, it, but, it's but the point is, is that, you know, whenever you hear about something, especially on social media these days, about yeah. some type of investment. We didn't even have that back then. Right. 
Yeah, you know, just be aware. Speculation usually means that you're going to lose all your money, right? So it's always think about a speculative bet. If I'm going to do this speculative bet, how do I equate that? That is the same thing as going to, to Vegas and betting on black. You're either going to win and win big or you're going to lose and lose it all. That's just that you should approach every speculative investment that way. And if you're not willing to lose it all, don't do it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, listen, I mean, it, it, I understand that there could have been significant upside there. I mean, Lance just mentioned, though, there's the likelihood of that happening is very, very small. Right. And so we always want to take it in small bits and pieces when we're looking at anything that's speculative. Make sure you have a good understanding and just don't get talked into something that, uh, you know, if you're being sold that, that's when I'm always like, you know, flashing red lights start going off. Right. Like, Whoa, well, hang on. I, look, I get a lot of emails from people and they're like, oh, I just got offered this real estate investment deal. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to make, you know, 8% on this investment deal. It's, and it's this piece of real estate. This deal looks really great. First question to ask yourself, why are they offering it to you? Right. Ask yourself that question. Why are you so lucky that this company is offering this investment to you? Because if the deal was really good, and I deal in these these in these things all the time, if the deal is really good, it's bought up by an institution immediately because institutions are had they have more money than they know what to do with right now, and they've got to get an investment. So good to mediocre deals get absorbed by institutions very quickly. You'll never see them. So if you're seeing an investment deal that somebody's bringing to you, it's the bottom of the barrel, most likely. It's the one that nobody else wanted to fund. So just that's always the way to look at it. And that doesn't mean every deal is that way, but the vast majority of them will be. Well, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Leads to the next one, real estate investment trust. And while these can be very good in certain environments, in an environment like we're seeing right now, where we have rising interest rates, granted, I mean, the pandemic, nobody could have anticipated what that would have brought in the sense of office vacancies. I mean, you and I have talked about this forever, though. Like I drive down the road in the middle, you know, early in the morning and you drive by these big office buildings they're, and they're completely empty and they're building a new one right next to it. Right. You know, and so I've always had some speculation or hesitancy about that over the last you know, couple, several years. But this is one where with vacancies and with the anticipation, most of these real estate investment trusts, they're, they have to refinance after a specific period of time. If you're refinancing at higher rates, you have tenants that have moved out. Now you have hybrid work, all these different scenarios that we did not have previously. This can be problematic. And so, like Lance said, if somebody's not going to go and scoop that up, a big institution, they're coming to you and offering you a, I mean, I saw one the other day, Lance, where we had a client who had one uh, from a previous advisor and they came back and they said, we will give you 24%. They cannot find a loan. These companies cannot find anybody to give them money. a loan. They, the the but, office space is devalued, the building. Yeah, let me, just, let me just clarify one thing. We're talking about private real estate investment trust, right? Correct. So versus publicly traded REITs. Publicly traded REITs are a different story. You can buy one and sell it tomorrow, no big deal, right? Because it's, it's just, all it is that's is right. a stock in the real estate space. That's all it is. So that's just a stock. What we're talking about here is these private real estate investment trusts. And there's two things you got to really understand about this. One is that, again, go back to our previous premise, is that if they're offering it to you, why? That's the first question you ask yourself. Second thing is liquidity. Um, back in 2000 and around there, there was a, a financial radio program that was you know, on the show and they were, they were talking about this real estate investment trust and they were putting all their people into the trust. And they think, oh, this thing's gonna go public any day now. 23 years later, it still has not gone public, right? And these people are locked up in that real estate investment trust. So again, liquidity is another big issue. When do you get your money back? And that's the first question. First question you ask: Why am I so lucky? And when do I get my money back? 
And remember that all these things that real estate investment trusts offer is, is a pro forma. That's like, man, if I fill this thing up and I can charge everybody this amount of rent and all this happens, we're going to make so much money. Those are always the most optimistic assumptions. You always have to cut those down by 30 to 40% to get to what reality is going to be. So again, don't invest in private real estate investment trusts or private investment deals, period, unless you really know how to do the analysis, understand what your liquidity is, and understand what your risks are. Yeah, and, and again, I, lastly, ask yourself why you're so lucky to get the deal. Well, and even that, we, we have some very wealthy clients that, you know, I always love to learn a lot from them and, and pick their brain because they, they've been yeah. there, done that, they've accumulated wealth over the years. And many of them will put the bare minimum in any of these types of investments because they know the risk. They've been through it, but they also know that, hey, I may, I may hit a home run that's going to offset me losing money in these areas. And so they feel more comfortable with that. But they're putting much less than you know where you see somebody's putting all of their net worth in it. They're putting a very, very small portion in. Right. And so saying, hey, I like this deal. I think this may, may turn out great, but if it doesn't, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to sleep at night and I have many other deals that I'm doing as well yeah. and, and many other areas. So you're well, spreading out that risk. This goes back to your Vegas analogy, right? You never yeah. go to Vegas and take more money than you're willing to lose. Yeah. Right. Just understanding that it's a red or a black game. Ultimately, that keep going. No, no. So, that, so that's good. But yeah, I think that's very good to, to note that it is private placement where you do have issues getting liquidity. And so keep that in mind. Um, so you mentioned this a bit ago, penny stocks with speculation. This, I don't feel like is nearly as big of a deal as it used to be, but, um, you know, used to be you'd get these, you know, they call them pink slips, right? right? And they'd send everybody these these slips and, oh, talk about this company. And what we found is that way back in the day, especially it was that pump and dump scheme where, you know, oh, still you is. spend a lot of money with the marketing and then get it out. And then what do you know? Who heads for the exits? The owners. And you're stuck holding the bag of nothing. Yeah, that, that hasn't changed. It's just moved from from uh, basically mail mailings when you used to get stuff in to the emails. mail uh, to now social media. Right. Ah, just yeah. just get on social media. And there's plenty of guys telling you about this crypto or that crypto. And you should invest in it today. Don't miss it going up. Yeah. You always remember there's somebody selling on the other side in every transaction. Just always remember there's a buyer and a seller. They both think they're a genius. Be right back after the break. We'll finish this up. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, last segment here, we'll finish up. So, we talked a little bit about alternative investments and, and real estate investments. And again, just, you know, the, the point is those are too, right? So just understand, again, why you're investing in this. And, and again, the, the initial question, why are you so lucky? Right? Again, you know, unless and if you're if you're an uber high net worth guy that can put a couple of million dollars in a deal, that's why people are coming to you. But if you're just the normal kind of, you know, run of the mill, average person with some money in the, in the financial markets, and your advisors coming to you and saying, hey, I've got this great alternative investment deal, or I've got this great uh, real estate deal. Why am, why am I so lucky? Why, why are you coming to me to raise this money? Because institutions will fund these deals all day long. So that's the question. Well, the institutions fund them, package them, and then sell them to you at a price. At a price. <laughs> 
who's making the money, you or them. Uh, we also talked a little bit about uh, real, uh, real estate investment trust, uh, as I said. Um, you know, but you know, there's also Series I bonds, high yield bonds, sector funds. I thought was interesting to be on the list. Yeah, some of these are really interesting. I mean, I think I bonds are, are, are great. I mean, obviously, you're not buying them in a portfolio with your advisor or, you know, at, at Fidelity or wherever you hold funds. I think they're um, grossly misunderstood, though. No, I don't disagree. I think a lot of people don't understand them in the sense that, well, we see the great interest rate, but we don't understand that we're not actually physically beating inflation. We're just staying in, in line yeah, with it. Your, right? your return is zero on an I bond. Well, over time. And no, that's that's this is and this is the part. Well, your inflation adjusted return. You're no, that's right. Your your yeah. inflation adjusted. But nobody's but thinking about that. They're just seeing what they're getting. Yeah, that's I'm it. getting this great interest rate. They don't realize that over that time frame, your return is zero. That's the way an I bond works. So on an inflation basis. So, but again, this is why I think that it's probably on the list is that it's it's very misunderstood. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstood investments. And I think the problem with, you know, everything we've talked about right now, extremely subjective. And I know there's there's somebody who's going to comment probably on the YouTube channel and say, well, I've made my living doing this. Well, great. You're probably the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's very smart people out there that do exactly that. So we do have to be cautious with that. But, um, you know, investors we don't understand, I think that's that's a big problem. And, you know, I visit with a lot of people. And I think, you know, um, you know annuities are not on this list. And I'm surprised because they get so much grief. Right. And. I think annuities can be an amazing tool, but almost, I'm not going to say, I'd say nine out of 10 times I visit with somebody that has an annuity they've had for years, they don't understand it. Right. Like at all. That they Maybe a little it. bit. They don't understand it. And they and then it was sold to them. It wasn't, that doesn't even, the annuity doesn't even fit in their financial plan. It was just something that somebody sold to them. Yeah. Right. And they bought it because the sales pitch was good. Correct. And I think that there could be a space for many people to hold those. Um, if done properly and used right, they're, they're just so yeah. many times they're just not. And there's a big misunderstanding with that. And that's unfortunate because those are those can be a great tool. And the reason um, it's not on this list is because these are this was this article is around an investment portfolio. Right. So annuities aren't really thrown into that bucket. Uh, but they, it's insurance. They, yeah, but they should be. It's a big, big part of the financial plan. Right. right. I mean, they're, but they're, they're talking about yeah. portfolio management. Right. And that's Correct. why to your point, that's why it's not on the list. Yeah, exactly. go ahead. So, you know, I think the investors, people don't understand. I think that's really, with any of these, that should be something that if you don't understand it or the person you're working with cannot explain it to you, then why are we doing it? Right. Right. I don't think you should ever be able to, an advisor should never, you know, quote unquote, sell you something or, or push you into something that they can't articulate. And that's a problem. I yeah. see that often too. Like, why'd you do it? Well, it's just going to keep going up. Okay, great. <laughs> why? Yeah. You know, and I think that's a, that's a, yeah. you know, even if you're wrong, like we've had investments we've been wrong on, we still articulate a good reason on why we believe and why we stand by it. Right. Um, where, you know, many people are just like, nope, this is just the way it's going to go. Yeah. Well, and again, this is, but this all goes back down to understanding what you're investing in, why you're investing in it. And, and then, you know, how that fits into your overall portfolio dynamic. And, and it's, and it's, it's like high yield bonds. People buy high yield bonds because they like the yield, right? Oh, this has got a 6% yield, 5% yield, 7% yield, you know, whatever the number is. But it's a high yield bond for a reason. It's got a risk of bankruptcy, right? That's why you're overpaying for the yield. And in the past decade or so, because the Fed has been so involved in, in you know, kind of juicing the markets and suppressing risk out of the markets, high yield bonds haven't traded at a yield that is relevant to the risk because everybody was piling into these. So again, you know, you were getting a very small spread over risk-free treasuries to buy high yield junk that 
was on the verge of going going bankrupt. And look, high yield is you know we're talking about marketing earlier. Um, you know, marketing speculative penny stocks, et cetera. It's High true. yield bonds is a marketing term. Just like extended credit. Exactly. I mean, yeah. High yield. Well, it's a high yield. I, I want that. I want the high yield. It's a marketing term. What they don't, they just don't call it what it really is. Would you, if, if I came to you and I said, hey, I've got this really good bond for you. It's a high yield bond. What do you think? Oh, I want it. It's a high yield. If I came to you and said, hey, I got this junk bond to sell you, what are you, what are you going to buy? Right? You're like, I don't want that. I don't Who, wants want junk? Th- Who wants junk? But that's what a high yield bond is. It's a junk bond. It's, it's got a risk of bankruptcy. So again, you know, if you don't understand it, don't buy it. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and I, I th- that's certainly one on the list. I think that's an important one to understand it, that, you know, there's always a risk reward factor with, with any of these investments and certainly with high yield. And that, that's one that I think that many people overlook, not only just thinking of, you know, not on the, the you know, debt or bankruptcy aspect of it, but also on um, that these things trade like an, e- an equity when things get bad. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of volatility associated with this where people think and associate bonds with, you know, very little volatility, well, except for last year um, and, and uh, some of this year so far. But for the most part, you know, most people associate, you know, a bad year in bonds is down a couple percent. Right. Um, and so you yet to understand exactly what you're in. Now, here's one I think that you you're going to be able to touch on quite a bit is leveraged ETFs. I mean, how many times do you see somebody that gets in one? Number one, maybe they don't understand it's leveraged or two, they just have this very high conviction that this is exactly how things are going to go. And then they pile into it and they just see it. It just, you know, we can rationalize markets, but then, you know, what we think may happen doesn't happen when it does. Well, and there's two, there's two factors that people miss in leveraged ETFs. So one is, is the risk, you know, so if, 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 the way options work, and these leverage ETFs are all based on options, which options have a time frame to maturity. And as the option approaches the time frame maturity, it degrades in value. And this is why the worst thing you want to be in is a leveraged fund of anything in a flat market. Because if the market's not going anywhere, that leverage is costing you money. So you actually wind up actually losing money even if the market is flat. The only way these leveraged things work and really work beneficially to you is that you've got to time the trade. In other words, you can buy it and then the market goes up or down if you're betting on a short market um, and it happens immediately, then yeah, it will track fairly closely to the index on a very short time frame. But because of what we call the decay of premium, it's the time decay of those option premiums over time, the longer you hold it, the more money you lose. So again, this is just a function that leverage sounds great, until it goes against you because it goes against you twice as fast as you as as it would would be otherwise right so you know if the market goes down 10% and you were long leveraged the market if you're just long the S&P you'll lose 10% but if you're double leveraged you're going to lose 20% plus the decay of premium so you wind up losing probably closer to 25% when that option goes against you so Again, it's just you know, uh, just in, incredible. If you're if you're speculating in the markets and you don't care about the losses, go ahead. So that's all on you. But if you're just buying and holding leverage ETFs, they're going to work against you over time because of simply the way the options work. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. So another one on the list was commodities, and I find this one. Uh, I mean, I, I understand exactly where they're going with this because they're saying, look. Commodities are t- typically traded on the futures markets. Most people don't have the expertise to access it, nor you know to understand exactly what to do. I have some. I know some people that do a very good job trading futures. Um, but keyword, they're trading futures. It's yeah. a very short term. Correct. But the other the other aspect of this is there's other avenues to invest in commodities, right? We can invest in it through mutual funds, ETFs, yep. 
where you don't have to have that expertise of knowing how to how to trade them. Um, but, you know, so that's one that, you know, I'm not that's more subjective. Well, the, the, the issue with commodities is the same as leveraged ETFs, though. And this is the key point, which commodities are derivatives. You're not buying the actual you're not buying a bushel of wheat sticking in your garage and going to go sell it to somebody later. Right. You're buying an option that has a decay of premium on it. So, again, this is actually kind of the same advice with leveraged ETFs. If you buy and hold options, you know, or derivatives over time, you're going to wind up losing money if the price goes against you. So, uh, and and it's going to be worse because of what happens with the under underlying decay of the option itself or the, or the derivative contract. So, again, we just go back to the simple fact that you know these things can move very quickly against you. Um, I've known commodity traders over the last 30 years. I've never known one that survived long term. Um, option traders, commodity traders do great for a year or two. They always blow up eventually because of the leverage of the, and the derivatives. And then when things go against them, it goes against them really fast and really bad. So again, you know, we talk about all the oil traders back in 2008, <laughs> you know, uh, 2020 when oil prices went to zero, yep. wiped out tons of commodity traders. That happens all the time. Uh, commodities are a boom bust cycle. Well, and there's so many so, geopolitical events, so many other aspects. Absolutely. That can, one of my best friends is a commodity trader, does a really good job. But going back to, you know, number one, he understands the market really, really well. Mm -hmm. Number two, he won't get too far over his skis so that if it gets really goes against him, hey, I can lose today. But, but you know, yeah. you're going to have those days where it just doesn't go your way. You're going to have a month or two, but you've got to understand your risk and understand big picture. And that's the problem, I think, with many people is that they go all in in one thing because they have a high conviction. And it goes against them, and they don't have any they don't have any dry powder to put back in to make this right. So yeah. that's that's the other aspect of this. Um, last one on the list was individual muni bonds, and I'm I kind of I'm not not the biggest fan of that one at all because I do like individual muni bonds. I think there's a lot of good things you can do with them if you understand how to use them, especially if you're in a high income tax bracket. Well, his his point on this one was again going back to understanding what you're buying, and a lot of people buy basically junk bond municipal bonds, right? Yeah. And, and while municipal bond defaults are very low, they do happen. And they're also illiquid in that case as well. So again, this goes back to liquidity and safety. Understand what you're investing in. I, I love municipal bonds. I can't talk enough about them, but we only buy municipal bonds for school districts, for utilities and much, basically stuff people have to pay for because you'll always get your money back. So, all right, that wraps up the show for today. Danny, thank you so much. Um, we'll be back tomorrow, of course, with Michael Leibowitz talking about uh, the upcoming Fed meeting, what that means, of course, with this recent inflation data. We'll talk about that as well. So we'll see you back here tomorrow on the show. Have a great day.